I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. That was good. From my end, it was like I went first and then you went second and there wasn't a second of overlap. Okay, well, on my end, it sounded overlappy. If you guys cannot tell, we are back in the cove, which is the little holes that we crawl into when one of us gets COVID. I guess we could have recorded together because you're all in a bodied up. I know, but I guess I don't want to take that risk. What if I have the newest form? Like I invented a brand new COVID. Yeah, what if you were legend and now it's mutated in you and now there's like the legend strain? I would call it Clairvid. Fun. It sounds like a 90s media network. If you've made it this far, you probably know where you are. But if you don't and you're new, let me tell you. This is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we, much like a classic book club, dive deep into the pages of a memoir. We're not here to just read the surface level, what do you call them, words, okay? We're here to dive into the ideas. And give our opinions. If you're hoping to walk away from this podcast feeling the exact same way you've always felt about every celebrity ever, this is probably not it for you. But if you want to know the truth, if you want to really think about things, welcome aboard. This is where we think about things. We're realizing stuff. This is the podcast for realizing stuff. And if you like it, we would appreciate a five-star review. I read all of our five-star reviews on iTunes at the end of the episode. And if you are on Spotify, you can also leave a five-star review. And we appreciate it so much from the bottom of our bones. We also have incredible merch out right now designed by our friend Adrian. The link is in the show notes and it is so beautiful. I'm literally wearing the sweatshirt right now. And we have a show every Thursday at Nikki's Unisex in Williamsburg. This Thursday, we have an incredible lineup and Claire will be post-quarantine. So she'll be back in the game. What a fucking treat for everybody, I guess. With our business taken care of, Claire... If you were to write a memoir about your life, what would this week's chapter be called? Get them while they're up. It's about boners. <laughs> Gross, Ashley. I was going to say, I was having a really good week and then I got COVID, but I'm trying to be grateful. I got a journal last week and I really think this is the journal that's going to finally turn things around for me <laughs> from an organizational and a success standpoint. And I am trying now every day to write in my journal one thing I'm grateful for to try to you know change my whole attitude about life. And I was having a really good week and I was feeling on top of the world. And then I got COVID. But nevertheless, she stays humble and grateful. I am trying to be grateful that I feel like I have a relatively mild case overall as far as things go. And once I'm done with it, I'll be back out on my feet full of antibodies. If you come to the show on Thursday, I'll spit it in your mouth so you can have some of my antibodies. Gross. Free of charge. (laughs) That's the healthcare we have in this great country. And you know what? Even though... It sucks to be sick and to not be able to breathe so good. I don't even care. I don't even care because I'm still getting high on my lack of supply. You know what I mean? Air supply? Yeah. Ew. I'm feeling dizzy. I'm worried. (laughs) No, I think I'm pretty good. My mom does keep calling and being like, are you getting enough oxygen? And I'm like, well, since we're sitting here on this FaceTime, I'm going to guess yes. I think if I have enough oxygen to FaceTime you, I think yes. But Ashley, what would you have called this week's chapter of your memoir? I would have called it making mountains out of molehills because my face has recently erupted with mountains. My heart goes out to anyone who's ever truly struggled with acne. And I am sorry if this is really an obnoxious thing to say, but I got a couple of pimples this week that were so aggressive that you could like feel them burrowing through the bottom of my 
Like they were coming up from my skull. Like they were really erupting from the bottom like sea volcanoes. Like the iceberg that took down the Titanic. (laughs) Yes. And so you can barely see them on the surface, but I can feel them in my face. And it's so physically uncomfortable that it's all I've been able to think about all week. I feel like it's taken over my week. The idea of going out and having a conversation feels like too much because my face will be in turmoil. I think it's a combination of like cold weather, masks, overall stress about the world. You know, I have the world on my shoulders and that's a lot. People understand how hard Ashley is working to keep the world together. And it's getting to her. I'm not doing a good job and they keep saying it on Twitter. (laughs) What if Ashley was God? And that's why the world is going to shit because instead of taking care of everybody, God was on this fucking podcast just struggling to get an episode out every week. I spend all week trying to think of ideas for TikTok instead of solving the world. People think God is omnipotent, but God doesn't know what to post on TikTok today. (laughs) Anyway, should we get into this week's book? We should get into this week's book. Speaking of not being able to get anything done, I think this week's book really inspired me to get back on my girl boss fucking game. Blowing My Way to the Top by Jen Atkin. How to break the rules, find your purpose, and create the life and career you deserve. We're girl bossing too close to the sun this week, which is literally what happened to me this week. I was girl bossing hard and then I got COVID. Yeah, you like went to the store to buy a planner and then the world said, no plans for you right now. The mistake I made is if I hadn't had a hairdryer with me the whole time, I would have been blowing the COVID away from my face. Yes. What if that's what we're going to need to do this summer? What if we all had to wear those Propelli hats to like keep the air circulation around us flopping? Or like the spray bottles you get at Disney World with a little fan on it to spray away the COVID. Yes. Wait, these are good ideas. CDC, if you're listening. (laughs) Biden. Hello, Joe. We did it, Joe. We solved COVID. A Dyson air wrap for everyone. (laughs) Okay, so this week we read Blowing My Way to the Top by celebrity-adjacent celebrity stylist Jen Atkin. Claire, what did you know about Jen Atkin before this book? I've been pretty aware of her because, so first and foremost, she came up with the Kardashians. She is their go-to hairdresser. She is the best friend and hairdresser of Chrissy Teigen. They regularly go on vacations together. She's good friends with Jessica Alba. She did Hailey Bieber's hair on her wedding. And she's also the creator of Main Addicts, which is a website that I've never been to, but The Way products, which I actually am a huge fan of. I love The Way serum. Do you use any Way products? I actually don't, but I want to try them because she sounded in this book deeply passionate and knowledgeable about hair. And so it made me trust her input. I love those products. Hailey Bieber's hair at her wedding, I will say, was one of the best wedding looks I've seen in a long time. I don't support the wedding, but I do support the look. And I do kind of wish that instead of getting married to Justin Bieber, she had just had a wedding photo shoot because those photos were worth it. But that's another point. A la Carrie Bradshaw in Vogue when she had a wedding photo shoot and the wedding got canceled. Yes, we should all just be doing that. I feel like the whole point of getting married is dressing up. Can I tell you my dream for the future? Sure. Instead of weddings, we all have like huge 30 birthday parties. Okay, well, I already turned 30. So I don't like this idea because I missed out. (laughs) You can't hold other people back just because you aged out. Of course I can. And I will for the rest of my life. I plan to gatekeep fun for everyone. Should we get into blowing my way to the top? I'm ready to get blown. Jenna Atkin was born March 10th, 1980 to an Ecuadorian mother and adopted at birth by a Mormon family from Utah. That is something I truly never knew about her. 
she gets into it a little bit. The setup of this book is very much almost like a sales pitch. And it's very like, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'll tell you. And I'll tell you what I told you. And so we get an introduction to this book. That's a chapter that basically is the Wikipedia about me, where she goes through her entire life and more or less just puts asterisks at anything interesting and being like, I'll get to this later. I'll get to this later. There's a chapter on this in the future. And I will say my main qualm with this book is that she really doesn't dive into anything in the future. I think that this book could have really been the first chapter and then a couple of bullet points. Yeah, or it could have been one very long chapter or there could have been no first chapter and she just could have gotten to it when she got to it because there were a couple parts of her personality that were really explained later in the book when she went back and fleshed out the earlier parts. Yeah. Like she comes across as such a workaholic in this book and you think, oh, was she always like that? Like, where does this come from? And you find out at one point she had gone to LA, taken out 20 different credit cards and gotten herself into $70,000 of debt. And you go, okay, well, that early 20s experience really explains the late 20s experience of being addicted to saying yes to every job and really doubling down and becoming a workaholic. And not taking a day off for like three years. I wish I had known that first because that explains what comes later. But that's not really how this book is set up. This book is more set up as a business manual and sort of a feel good. You can too. Who would you say this book is for? So I think that this book is for someone who needs a little bit of career inspiration and is not going to read an actual business book. It's a business book that's disguised as a memoir that also isn't a business book. Do you know what I mean? A lot of times throughout the book, she'll like broach a concept and be like, this concept is better explained in this business book that I read. And I'm like, man, I do think that whoever is genuinely picking this book up should have just picked up the business book instead. This very much is for your 17-year-old cousin who doesn't know if she should go to college or not. It's very much for somebody who is not actually living in the real world because there's very few real-world experiences out there, but it's a good believe-in-yourself episode of a cartoon show or something. Yeah, and there are some really good general tips that don't super apply to practical experience, in my opinion, but also are like good to keep in mind. Nothing she says in this book is wrong and is also deeply qualified. This is the most written by a woman book I've ever seen in my life. There are so many apologies in this book. There is so much apologizing for who she is, where she's from, the opportunities afforded to her. She'll be like, I really struggled with this, but obviously my struggle would have been worse if I were gay. (laughs) She's like, okay, no one... What? So she opens this book in the introduction saying that she had planned on waiting till she was at the end of her life. She says that she always imagined herself if she wrote a book, it would be like shoe dog. And let me tell you, dear listener, shoe dog, this is not. Can you tell them what shoe dog is? Shoe dog is a book by Phil Knight, the creator of Nike, about his journey creating Nike, which now that I think back on it, it was an incredible memoir. I don't even know if it was that interesting of a story. I think it was just brilliantly written. And this book doesn't give you any of that. He really flushes into the psyche of creating a business, the people who told him he couldn't, the journey he went on to explore product and get to know the market, the first meetings, the feelings he had going into those first meetings. And this book really gives us like, people doubted me, but I said, nay. And then I did it. And you're like, all right, well, were there feelings? Even though she says that she wanted to wait till the end of her life and write a shoe dog, she, of course, wrote this book during the pandemic, 2020, 
when she was 40 years old and she wrote, it took decades for me to muster the confidence to share the lessons I've learned in a book or to even believe that I had the authority to write a book. But I feel equipped today to help anyone who's in the place where I was 20 years ago, broke, scared, stuck, and wanting more out of life than what my community envisioned for me. I'll tell you the story of how I got to where I am today. A 40-year-old woman who's built a rewarding career, found financial security, and even more importantly, has created the life she dreamed of. Of course, I'm not finished. I'm still learning and growing, but my life has changed so much that I do believe that some of these early chapters have finally closed and I can look back on them and share my discoveries. So do you think that she accomplishes the looking back and sharing of discoveries? I think she does. Unfortunately, I do think she does them with the depth of like a fortune cookie. Okay, I take that back. I think there's one or two places where she gives unique, specific insight that is helpful and interesting. But for the most part, I don't know that she says anything in this book or illuminates anything in this book that you probably haven't heard at 17, which is take risks, believe in yourself, work hard, be professional. And then there's always the, but don't work too hard. Yeah. But don't work too hard. Let's just get into the book. I feel like we're doing the Jen Atkin, illustrating the entire thing up top and saying we'll get to it later, but let's just get to it. So this book starts with her early life. She was adopted, raised in a Mormon family in Utah, and then they moved to Hawaii, and then I think back to Utah. Then she says, in the summer of 1999, after I graduated from high school, I moved with my best friend, Lindsay, from our hometown of St. George, Utah, to the big, scary metropolis of Salt Lake City. There, they moved when she was 20 to Los Angeles. At the words of Dave Matthews... (laughs) She had this like huge life-changing moment where they had a connection to a Dave Matthews band music video. They showed up, they got to meet Dave Matthews and he said, what's your biggest dream in the world? She said, I want to work behind the scenes in the movies or in a salon. And he looked at me and said, then you should. And that was all she needed. Yeah, she goes, listen, I know it sounds a little ridiculous now, but I'm totally serious when I say it was the bit of encouragement from someone truly successful, someone I idolized that changed the course of my life. Dave had given us permission to take control of our destiny and told us to pursue our dreams. And this does sound ridiculous, but I do think it is important. She really explains that she comes from this Mormon background where she was fully raised to become a wife and mother. So this idea, you as the woman were allowed to pursue your own dreams is huge for her. She says in the beginning... She writes very specifically that her parents were very afraid for her, but did stand by her and support her where the rest of the community was like, what the fuck are these kids doing? She later in the book admits to having a lot of resentment for the way she grew up and some of the things her parents taught her and the way they raised her. So I wonder if it was so simple as like, oh, they're proud of me. Let's keep trucking. But anyway... She did know, first and foremost, that she had no interest in getting married and starting a family then or for a really long time, maybe ever. And then she ends it with this. Before we get started, a disclaimer. The people who know me describe me as brutally honest and full of tough love. They're right. And that personality trait has served me well over the years. I believe in having the guts to speak up, question authority, and tell the truth rather than to say what people want to hear. So now you know what's coming. It's real talk about success and how I got it. It will always come from a place of encouragement and positivity. And I hope that's what you want and need to hear. But I promise not to sugarcoat. No one has time for bullshit. So sit tight and let's get started. So there's a lot of asterisks in this book. And one of them about Dave Matthews at the bottom of this page says, also, I hope Dave Matthews doesn't take a restraining order out on me. But even that is so indicative of the rest of the book. Like, what do you think you said that would make a celebrity afraid of you? That he said something was to you that was positive. And like changed the course of your life. And now you have a multi-million dollar company. I don't think he would take that as an insult or like a breach of his trust or anything like that. He literally said, oh, if you want to do something with your life, do it. And that's the thing is this book, this brutal honesty and tough love. I don't think I saw brutal honesty or tough love 
But she also says, I hope by the time you're done reading this book, you have a renewed sense of who you are and who you deserve to be. And I do wonder what she thinks is in this book. Do you think it's too early for me to get into my theory? No, I don't think it's too early. I have a theory that she wrote this book during the pandemic when a lot of celebrities were doing cash grab memoirs because everything else had been put on hold and they didn't know what else to do. I think as a hairstylist and something she talks a lot about is being a leader for other hairstylists. And now that she's so successful, she has sort of a team underneath her. So if you get a Jen Atkin styling appointment, it's not going to be with Jen Atkin. It's going to be with somebody she trained. I wonder if she wrote this book to keep that part of her business afloat and to inject money back into it. And I respect her a lot for it, but I also think it explains why there's not much here. I think it does explain why it is such a quick cash grabby type book. I guess here's the thing. I think everyone has a story to tell. You just have to be willing to tell it. I think that's what we've learned from these memoirs is even someone with the most boring life, even a decent writer can mine stories for relatability and honesty and inspiration. So The fact that these books go so quickly and have nothing in them, I'm like, that is very much a choice. I do think that there are a lot of things in here that you and I have looked at as the writing professors we are and been like, this sentence could have been a great chapter if she had delved into it. Let's start with chapter one, feeling good as hell. She says, I've been blessed in this life with a healthy dose of confidence. Not cockiness, mind you. The two are different, but a deep sense of my own value. Then she gets into her upbringing. I always joke that I was smother loved as a child, that my parents never put me down, and that's why I'm so confident today. I was adopted at birth. My parents adopted me from an Ecuadorian girl who wanted to come to America to give her daughter a chance at a better life. She had to hide her pregnancy from her entire family, and I'm forever grateful to her for that sacrifice and voice. My mom and dad always made every effort to ensure that I knew that the very thing that made me different, the fact that I don't look like my sisters or cousins, or that I was one of the only brown kids in our Utah town, were actually the things that made me special. And to their credit, that message came through loud and clear. So that is kind of the last we hear of being adopted. Yeah. And that is something that I think could have been a fascinating chapter. What was it truly like being the only brown person in Utah? So I didn't even realize that she was not white with a name like Jen Atkin. And I think she's relatively white passing. What has it been like growing up in LA around people who might not know that you're Ecuadorian? Like, I think that there's a lot of stories that she could have gotten into that she just glosses over completely. Has there ever been an attempt to like contact her birth mother? What has that been like for her? I mean, maybe I'm just like inundated with anti-adoption TikTok right now. But I do think that the way she's like, thanks, mom. Anyway, I was adopted because she wasn't just adopted to an America. She was adopted into one of the most homogenous religious groups, I think, going today. Mormons didn't accept black members into the church until the 1970s. She even says in this book, And have you ever been on Mormon TikTok or kind of like Utah people TikTok where they'll talk about people in Utah just look different? There is a look here that is not common in any other place. And it's so bizarre. Like, I feel like you come to a bigger city or even semi-homogenous places like the Midwest where there is like a very specific look. In Utah, there's one kind of beautiful. I've seen a lot of TikToks on it. They're like, this is Utah hot. And if you don't look exactly like this, you are Utah ugly. But it's true. They're like like the shiniest white girl. Like, and I do think that in Mormonism, you like strive for perfection, especially in these traditionally feminine ways. I don't think it's a coincidence that she ended up becoming a hairdresser coming from a background where female beauty is like having long, shiny hair. And it's so deeply important. But that does not get looked into at all. 
I wonder if she knows. You know what? I take that back. She has one paragraph about how growing up her mom always put on her face. And so she was raised that the day is easier to face when you have your look pulled on. And she says, even FaceTiming when parents during the pandemic, my mom always had full hair and makeup. And it's funny because I think she sees that as like a quirky character of her mom's and not part of the religion she grew up in. But she does give her parents a lot of credit. She says, my parents always taught me that I had the right to speak up for myself and that I was smart and thoughtful and had ideas worth sharing. I know that may not sound especially progressive in today's culture, but you have to remember that we're talking about Utah in the 1980s. The values my parents instilled in me were a lot more progressive than what some of my classmates were hearing in their homes. And I don't underestimate the impact it's had on my life. And so then she gets into this chapter about self-promotion. So the majority of this chapter is about self-promotion and the importance of it and understanding cockiness versus championing yourself and how her entire business is built on self-promotion. That's where she came from. She was an early hairstylist to get on social media and be sharing her hairstyles and to be sharing process and ideas with the world instead of trying to gatekeep everything. But also the fact that she worked with celebrities didn't hurt, obviously. But it really was the fact that she was blasting everything out into the ether. That's why she is who she is today. I thought it was interesting that apparently in hairstyling up until about a decade ago, Top hire stylists did not want to share what they had learned. These master classes were not a thing of the past, which I assumed they would have been because how else would you have learned? But she was like, I was one of the first people not just showing my work, but other people's works and then doing tutorials. And that helped build a community. I think that that's one of the major things is that the free online tutorials, the fact that she was putting ideas and processes on social media to just take that was really uncommon. I think some people were doing master classes or apprenticeships where you had to like pay or work for that person to get their secrets. It wasn't just a thing you could click on. And she also shares the way that the Kardashians have kind of pioneered the glam squad because they're some of the first celebrities to have been tagging their glam squad on Instagram. That hasn't always been a thing. Even when I was working in social media a while ago at Man Repeller, it was becoming a thing that you would tag all of your outfits. You would tag the hair, the makeup, everything like that. That was becoming part of the process when I was there, even a couple of years ago. Something she does say that I find interesting is she talks about the disparity between male and female investments in venture capitalism. And she says 10% of the decision makers at venture capital firms are women and only about 2% of venture capitalist dollars go to companies led by female founders and even less companies with female founders of color. And I do think something that she says here, she goes, more important than being skilled, honestly, is believing in yourself. Studies show that believing in yourself is as important as intelligence when it comes to finding success. Those same studies show that most women are woefully lacking when it comes to confidence. Just saying. But this is another example I think of what she's saying is true and what she's saying is it wrong. I wish she had gone deeper into it because I do think obviously men aren't smarter than women, but they are more likely to believe in themselves when they shouldn't. Yes. And that kind of gusto gets them in the door, whereas women are much more likely to only vouch for themselves when they're 100% ready to go. But I think most of us know that at this point. I think that's pretty well known. The whole like, well, women don't ask for more money, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, well, now what? I think this calling it out is not enough anymore. What's the second step? Well, so there were a lot of parts of this book where I had to keep reminding myself that it was written last year or published last year because a lot of it feels like it would have been really major to publish this book seven years ago. And now it's just very like surface level information. I mean, I liked this little piece. She talks about Chelsea Handler saying that women need to promote themselves the way they would promote a sister or a friend. And that has always stuck with her. And I I agree with that. I think that sometimes I think about the way that I talk about my friends. Like if I heard someone say that about me, I'd feel so uncomfortable. And if I said 
that about myself, I'd feel so uncomfortable. So, I mean, people do need to get better at that, but like literally how? Just do it. That's not helpful. I actually had a friend just call me out on that. I was excited about something and then I was like, well, it's probably stupid. And my friend Grace was like, Claire, if I said that, you would scream in my face. And I was like, that's so true. Yes. (laughs) So then I was like, no, it is cool. I'll just say it. This is a thing I'm excited about. I will say, do you know, I think one thing that's nice about having a business with my best friend me? Yeah, it helps me be excited for me because when something happens for us, I'm like, well, I'm really excited for Claire. So that means I have to be excited for Ashley too, because it'd be weird if I was like, well, your 50% is more important. Like you're doing a great job and I just suck. Like that's... (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to celebrate with someone. I was thinking about Taylor Swift the other day in that Miss Americana documentary when she was like, when I won that second Grammy and I had nobody to celebrate with. And I was like, of course I have a boyfriend, but at the end of the day, I'm always going to celebrate with you because we put in this work. You're the person that I'm excited because it's happening to both of us. Yes. And so then it like makes me not diminish my own accomplishments because then I'm like, well, if I'm diminishing myself, then I'm diminishing you. And that's really mean. Another little tidbit in this chapter that I think is really good is when you're posting on Instagram to be like, am I showing up or showing off? I think that that's helpful. I think with Instagram self-promotion, like what are you showing? Are you just like bragging to people or are you showing your work? Which I think is good to keep in mind. I will say one of my biggest through lines about this book and I think all career self-help books, we know that I've worked in a number of toxic environments. And I do think all of this work advice is only useful at a healthy company. So I agree with your thing of like, yeah, it's easy to just say these things, but how do you actually put anything into practice? She gets into that a lot in this book about how to act as an employee, how to act as a boss and this and that. And it's like, these are all very correct tips, assuming the people around you aren't toxic individuals. And I do think especially in like entertainment and Hollywood and fashion, hair, things like that, The fact that you're assuming the people around you aren't egomaniacs is insane. Taking risks is the next part of this chapter. Like she's like, try taking baby steps out of your comfort zone. And then she talks about setting boundaries and how it's important to say no. And she goes, the next time someone asks you to do something that fills you with dread or resentment or makes you feel exhausted just thinking about it, I urge you to politely say no. It will serve as a reminder yourself that your needs matter. And most of the time it ends up being not such a big deal for the other person or so my agent has told me. I hear her, but she gets more into this down the line about how she didn't say no to anything until like the last couple of years now that she's successful. And one of my biggest pet peeves about people who were workaholics who became very successful and then look back and say, looking back, I realized I didn't have to work that hard. I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe if you didn't work that hard, you wouldn't have been so successful. I kind of think there's no way to say that from the other side. How would you know? Because is there someone who was in a comparable position to you 10 years ago who did take the weekends off? And where are they now? Show us the proof. I'm very curious to see if anyone is successful. So this chapter is a little bit all over the place, but I think one of the big pieces of it is Instagram and self-promotion. And then she gets into the fact that when you're on Instagram, when there's a lot of self-promotion involved in your career, there are haters and what she's opened herself up to by making herself into like a hair personality. And then she talks about this situation where she defended Kim Kardashian when the KKW body fragrance came out. Okay, so she says, it isn't like me to respond to reviewers, but I jumped to my friend's defense, calling out what I saw as the hypocrisy of slamming Kim's contribution to consumerism while this person is making a living off of reviewing those products. In hindsight, I probably should have stayed quiet. My comments got picked up by a few magazines and got called out by other bloggers who said I was being cruel. It was the first time in my career that I've had to withstand that kind of public scrutiny of me as a person. I was pretty uncomfortable, TBH. Okay, so what actually happened is a blogger posted a review of Kim Kardashian's new fragrance. Remember the fragrance that was shaped like a body? Mm -hmm. She wrote, 
all caps, you are a miserable human being. Please stop being so negative and start supporting women who have helped make it possible for you to make a living on Instagram. You should be thanking Kim Kardashian. You can have a review without being nasty or using the term monster. In the review, they said Kim Kardashian is a monster that we've created. Shut the fuck up. You have no idea how hard she works on the brand. They employ hundreds of people and don't just shit out products like legacy brands. You need to do research. I will say that it reads unhinged. I guess that weird thing about the Kardashians is why does one suddenly pierce you? So here's my thing about Jen Atkin as a whole. And I think that's something I should have said at the beginning of this chapter and like her discussion of self-promotion and cockiness and like what to post, what not to post. She does like straddle this weird line of does she want to be a public persona or no? She's very like stay humble, stay behind the chair, just like do your job and do it well. But then she also has created a full-on brand that she's the face of. She wrote a book. She's clearly the face of something. You know what I mean? And I think that she has this weird thing of being like, I had no idea the media would pick up on it. And it's like, okay, well, you're like constantly posting Instagrams with Chrissy Teigen. Like, you know, the media is going to care about what you're doing. Do you want that or no? Like she talks about not wanting to be the center of attention. At one point there was like conversation about doing a reality show with her. And I do think it's interesting the way that her career has been sort of creating a new blueprint. But I don't think she... I guess I don't know how to explain it. Like, she's like, take little baby step risks. The fact that she worked with the Kardashians, she calls like a major risk. But I do find it weird the way that so many people are like, my agent told me to not work with reality stars. And then I did. And now look how successful I am. It is this weird thing of like, I don't know how big of a risk that really is. In all fairness, I've only heard it with the Kardashians. And I do think 10 years ago, agents were specifically saying, don't take a step back in the same way that they used to tell actresses, once you switch to movies, don't take a step backwards into TV. Okay. There did used to be this hierarchy. And it's like, once you had leveled up, you don't level back down. And I was just actually talking to somebody else who was saying that their agent was like, don't be staffed on a TV show because it's better to be thought of as somebody who created a TV show. You don't want to then downgrade yourself. And I do think from an agent's perspective, an agent wants you to be making the most money possible. They don't want you working these little jobs. They want you doing Nicole Kidman for the Oscars. And I think back in the day, pre-social media, when everything was done through these gatekeepers, like these agents and everything was funneled, you had to listen to the one person who got you work because nobody was just DMing you and saying, hey, I love your work. Would you work for me here? And I think what she did was she had the foresight to get on Instagram and she began to break that mold. And I think because she was such a workaholic, she said yes to every job, including the Kardashians. Makeup by Mario has said that exact same thing that people were like, do not work with a reality star because where will that get you? They used to be trash. And of course, the Kardashians have blown up and they've taken the people with them. And so it's been huge. I do think it was a big risk back in the day to disobey your agent, the only person getting you work. And I do think it was a big risk back in the day to work with these people. In the same way that it'd be like a big risk to do a YouTube show. Four years ago, people just said, why would you risk everything to just make TikTok content all the time? And now we have Charlie D'Amelia. I think we're much more used to the adaptability and like virality of new medias. But back in the day, it used to be very cut and dry ladder. That's true. I didn't know anything about the hairstyling game, to be honest. There's a chapter in a little bit where she'll talk about the fact that it was like a male-dominated industry. And I'm like, okay, I guess when I think about it, a lot of the hair names that I know are men, but it never even occurred to me that hairstyling was a male industry. I think it's a lot like cooking too, where cooking is traditionally like this very feminine thing that like women cook, but men are chefs. Even like painting, like painting, what's fruitier than painting? But like (laughs) 
all the famous artists were men. Interior decorators, all the big ones are men. Like all these things that are like traditionally feminine, the minute there's money in it, suddenly it's a man's game. The other thing she talks about is everyone's a critic and she goes, feedback can help us understand what energy or impression we're putting out into the world. Sometimes you may get feedback, note it and just decide to dismiss it. And that's perfectly okay. You know yourself best, but having enough self-awareness and self-respect to at least take in someone else's perspective, is critical if you're going to grow personally and professionally. And when someone you trust says something you really don't want to hear, listen even harder. She also talks about the ability to take in negative feedback and how that's so important for growing. But I agree with you that like, I'm not 100% sure what the through line of this chapter is. It's called feeling good as hell. I mean, I think overall it's about confidence, but she has so many like disjointed chunks about confidence that all semi-relate. They're like, I was confident enough to take this risk. I was confident enough to trust the feedback. And I think when you distill it, you're like, okay, there is a through line here, but the way it's written, there really isn't. I wish she had written it as a memoir and then like highlighted the lessons she learned as she went. But I think she couldn't do that because she is so deeply private that if it had been lined up in a chronological order and done through the personal perspective, we would have seen how much we were missing. Because she doesn't give personal anecdotes to a lot of this. It's all very generalized. Like she says, if you consider yourself risk averse, I encourage you to think of these pivotal moments less as scary leaps into the unknown and more as badass challenges and start small. Maybe don't jump by moving across state lines with only a few hundred dollars and nowhere to live. If you're looking to switch careers, your first challenge might be to reach out to someone who works in your ideal field to ask some questions. Like that is true, but I do wish that she had come up with some quote, badass challenges that she has experienced. She has these broad moments that are so broad. Like I chose to work with the Kardashians when someone advised me against it. What drove that decision? I wish she had said I took it because I was like at the point where I would take any money. She says that Chloe had been nice before, but like that means they had already worked together. What made her ignore her agent in that moment? What was the driving factor or what was the gut instinct that she listened to? Was it because she had met them and she thought they were really nice and it was important to her to work with good people? Was it important to her to never say no to a job? Like what made her ignore the person in control of her career? She says, when one thing doesn't work out, you can see more clearly where you should invest your talent and energy and voila, that's exactly where you were supposed to be all along. She includes like one business failure in this book and it's like, are all of these anecdotes coming from that one failure or have you had little moments where you were like, oh, this was the wrong client. This was the wrong choice. I did fuck up here. I wish that there was any personality driving these concepts instead of her just stating ideas. So she ends the chapter... The thing I feel most compelled to apologize for is my own success. Not because I feel guilty for making it, but because I know I got there more quickly than others. It's so funny. In the chapter about not apologizing, she apologizes. She goes, never for one second do I forget the hard work that other stylists before me put in and the barriers they've spent time breaking down. Nor do I forget the stylists who may have worked harder than others, but still were not granted certain opportunities or the same kind of success. My career has moved quickly, largely because of technology, but also because of my own and my client's hustle. Still, sometimes I find myself wanting to shrug off the credit. Whenever I find myself making excuses for my success rather than taking responsibility for it, I have to give myself the same pep talk I'm giving you. Own your success. You've earned it. Take confidence in it and don't apologize for your past. Celebrate your future. Straight off of this chapter on confidence is a chapter called Keep It Classy, which is a chapter about maintaining meekness. And I actually think... By accident, this chapter gets into a key to why she is so successful, which is, I think she did find the perfect career for her personality. Yes. I think she, because of her Mormon upbringing and maybe because she was like naturally genetically inclined to do pre-birth, 
She likes to serve other people. She is happy to be in an assistant position, which is what a hairstylist is. She's like assisting the overall creative vision of a celebrity. And she is so naturally good at it. Like knows exactly how much personality to show so that you like her. But she talks a lot about basically being a therapist to people, never sharing too much of herself. I mean, literally we're reading a book about her and she barely shares anything about herself. She makes it all about you. She is so good at making stuff about you. And I think that that is what took her to the top of being a hairstylist. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what you want, especially that's exactly what celebrities want. Celebrities love to talk about themselves and then feel like they've made a best friend. You've met like a handful of famous people in your life. Like they're so good at sweeping in and like making you feel warm and then sweeping out of the room. And then you're like, wow, they'll never remember this interaction. And I feel like Jen Atkin is like the perfect other side of the magnet to those people. She talks a lot about professionalism. Be yourself, but don't try to stand out in the wrong way. No crop tops, no booty shorts. Let your client tell the stories. If you're hungover or had a crazy weekend, keep it to yourself. If your client is on the phone, don't talk and don't eavesdrop. Be conscious of the way your phone is facing. So no one ever thinks you're taking a picture of them. And then she goes into a long section about not being a gossip. She says, it may seem like gossip is a way to bond with clients, but I always remember that the people in my chair and the agent manager or publicist to represent them have been in the business a long time. They may act friendly and interested when you offer a piece of inside info, but believe me, in the back of their minds, they're taking note. This person can't be trusted. We shouldn't work with them again. She also says, once you're branded a gossip, that reputation will follow you. And I promise it's not worth sabotaging a relationship, or your entire career for a few moments of feeling cool. I feel like something has come to bite her before. Or is she just saying that she's seen it bite people before? I want to know the scoop here. (laughs) Well, she says later that she has fired receptionists at the salon she has worked at for selling the locations of celebrities to paparazzi. Like they would call it paparazzi and be like, the celebrity is here and they've been fired over it. She has seen celebrity stylists, makeup artists, and hairstylists on set sell stories I think she's just smart that if you sell these people's stories or gossip about them, it will get out. There's a high price on all of the gossip you're overhearing as a stylist. Do not share it. I do wish that the chapter on not gossiping had had gossip in it because I'm so bored just being told not to gossip. I wish that you had told us a good anecdote about someone being like caught in 4K riding out the Kardashians. The reason this book kind of sucks is the reason why she is who she is, which is that you could pay her a fucking book deal and she's still knows where the real money is, which is having Kim share her products on Instagram, having Jessica Alba help promote her. She knows where the money is at and it's in loyalty. I wish she had done the Nicole Richie thing of like writing a fake book where she just like told all the real tea. But the thing is, she doesn't want to. I know. I think this book was not even for her. I really do believe she wrote this book for her stylists that work under her. Because it does not seem like she was particularly motivated to write this book. This is such an obvious cash grab with nothing in it. And she herself says, I always thought I'd write like a good memoir. And this is clearly not a good memoir. And I think she sat down and gritted her teeth and just said, how do I fill some pages? I guess the other thing is I don't think at her core she's like an interesting person. Because I do think a lot of people will be like, I always thought in my career I'd write a real memoir. But that doesn't actually have to be salacious. You can write a good, heartfelt, and like inspiring story without naming names. I genuinely believe it's possible. I believe that's possible too. And I think she didn't want to rat out her family. I think she's so private. She doesn't want to give anything away about her personal life, her family's life. But I still think she could have given us the ins and outs of her business. Like the few times she does give hard details, I was interested. Like when she told us, I was $17,000 in debt. I was like, that is an interesting number. These are the things I'm interested in. Then she writes all about honesty. I mean, it's just very surface level. Like, don't gossip. Be honest. Okay. (laughs) 
I wish she had just made it a business book then and be like, here's how you fill out a tax sheet. Here is the difference between an LLC and a C-Corp. Here's why I picked mine. Here was the thinking that went into this. If you want to write a business book, make a business book. It's literally this chapter is don't gossip, be honest, be grateful. And do you want to get into the honesty? Because I know that made you mad. It did make me really mad because I do feel like, once again, this is a tip for a healthy business. She says, good employees want their teams to make smart decisions and succeed. They don't want to dictate and be yes all day. And if you do have a boss who's a dictator, see page 23 on risk-taking and get the hell out of there. We live in a culture of deeply unhealthy companies. I have worked at several and I know that on this podcast, I seem like a crazy bitch. She's just like always fucking up at work and like being obnoxious, but I really am not. I always go in with good intentions to try and just do a good job. And I've worked at so many psychotic and unhealthy businesses where no one wants to be told the truth. I've worked for so many lunatic micromanagers where it's like they don't want any information from me. They want a handful of assistants just doing their bidding all the time and they'll hire people with skills and explain to them what they need done and then not listen to a single word you say literally ever. And I think that this is good advice, obviously, to be like, speak your mind. Your boss wants honesty from you. In a practical setting, I don't actually find it helpful. I just don't think it's doing anything for anyone. I want a book about working for micromanagers who you need help dealing with. To hear Jen Atkin be like, just be honest at work and people will appreciate you. It's like that actually isn't true in any of my experiences. (laughs) If you look at her experience, I don't think she spoke up a lot. The thing she seems to do the most is one, ask questions. And I think she was good about embedding herself into the head person by asking questions and being very curious and being an assistant. But she says she was actually an assistant all the way up until she was about 30 because every time she felt like she got ahead, she would learn a new skill. She was obviously an assistant at the salon while she was getting her hair cutting skills in. And then she would go to fashion week and she was an assistant for another two years. She got into red carpet fashion and she went on tour with Madonna and got into tour style fashion. And she's like, I just kept being an assistant for longer than most people would have been so that I could keep developing skills. And she's like, one of the things that helped me get ahead that a lot of people would have said at this age, I should be above being an assistant by now. But she's like, I kept my head down and just kept building my skills until she was undeniable. And that's why by the time she like launched out on her own, she was able to do anything because she had just been building and building and building. And that's kind of very different than standing up to your boss and saying yes or no. I think that the actual crux of this level of honesty is probably in the chair. Someone would say like, I want to do this. And I think that she is honest and capable of being like, you don't have the face shape for that style. And I wonder if that's what she's saying yes or no to. Because that is true. You should, as a stylist, do that because it's in both of your best interests. Because if someone gets a haircut that they think they're going to like and then you put it on their head and it looks like shit, then they just blame you for doing a bad haircut. She talks about in 2010 working in the Paris Fashion Week with like John Galliano. And I'm like, I can't imagine John Galliano said, this is the hairstyle I want for my models. And she said, actually, no. Yeah, no, of course not. There's no fucking way. That being said, her next section is have an attitude of gratitude and it's like always be polite, always say thank you. And she actually says that at this fashion show, Carly Kloss was one of the new models in 2010 and she gave all of the designers that she walked for that week a handwritten thank you note for making her dreams come true. And she's like, everybody was so touched by that and it ended up being Carly Kloss and look at her career. I have to say, you look at people like the Kardashians and she's like, Chloe and Kim will send heartfelt thank you notes. They're always on time. We were talking about Ellen being on time. I do think those little gestures in a world where people are such megalomaniacs do go a long way, especially if if you can hold out for long enough and stay polite. 
I think it gets you insanely far because a lot of people are such assholes so quick. I agree with that. On one hand, I think that if there are two people at a similar level who people are like, should we give this person a chance or this person a chance? Well, this one was so nice. Let's go with the nice one. I also think at this point, hasn't Carly been with Jared Kushner for a really long time? I don't know that it's like the thank you note made the difference, but I think it's the kind of person who's always on time, who's writing a thank you note, is probably also hyper-professional. I do think they're not like, oh, we liked Carly because she was so nice. If someone writes you a thank you note, now you're in their brain for a second time. You're not just the model. You're the model who wrote a thank you note. And that's like another synapse firing in the brain. And now when they're like, who's somebody we like? And you're just running through names. It's like, oh, what about Carly Kloss? I think it certainly didn't hurt. But I do think she says there's a reason why Carly has had such a long and successful career. And I think it obviously didn't hurt. And it certainly helped. But I don't think it's the reason. Everything she says is so surface level and easy. Like Carly Kloss wrote thank you notes. And that's why she's so successful today. But she's saying it's like a symptom of a larger professionalism, easy to work with, thoughtfulness that I do think gets you far. Yeah. If you look at the Kardashians, for example, the reason they were able to get Jen Atkin and Makeup by Mario is because all of these people who at one point were thought to be better than them, they were really nice. And everybody says, I wanted to work with them because I genuinely enjoyed working with them. And that's only helped the people that they've brought up. And I do think that part of why the Kardashians are so big is Chris sends everybody flowers. I mean, that's something that we've read in every single memoir. Yeah. Caitlyn Jenner said that about Chris. Chris is great about remembering a birthday. Chris is great about making you feel special. It's exactly what you just said about celebrities five minutes ago is like, they're able to come in and make you feel so special for five minutes. And of course, it means nothing to them. But I do think that that takes you far. I guess I'm going back to what we were saying at the beginning of this episode of like, none of it is wrong. It's just none of it is, in my opinion, worth writing down. Like being nice helps. Yeah. I don't know. I do think that like professionalism is something that's lost a lot, especially like on our generation and Gen Z. And I do think it takes you far. That's what I'm saying is I agree that it takes you far and I agree that it's useful. I just feel like in this context the way that it was set up to be like, don't gossip, be honest, be grateful. I was like, okay, thank you for these tips, dad. (laughs) I think the way it was written just like made me feel almost condescended to. I definitely think it's not for a 30-year-old woman who's 10 years into her career. It's definitely for a 17-year-old who has no idea what they're getting up to. And I saw it even at my last job, there was like all these new kids who got hired straight out of college. And the lack of professionalism was shocking. I do think that there's this real everybody works on TikTok idea now that we're all just like drinking and hanging out with the boss. And I do think it is very helpful to say to a teen that on the off chance, you're not going to start a billion dollar business at 19 years old. You should be aware, like don't be on your phone in a meeting. Show up dressed appropriately. Say thank you. Like these are basics that might seem like we were raised with, but I do think that there is like a generation of people that was not raised with them. No, that's true. And I think I have seen it in like interns and things like that before where my last job, there was this one girl who would show up in like very revealing outfits. And it was this thing where I was like, okay, you are allowed to do that. But also this is work. (laughs) Like a lot of young people make the mistake of thinking they're proving something by being different. And actually, when you're the lowest man on a professional totem pole, you should not be different. I guess this book is just so shiny and positive that I like would have preferred. Like, what's a story about someone being so deeply unprofessional? You don't even have to name a name. Just say what happened. And that would have been a funner story. 
Yeah, if she could have fleshed every single lesson out with a story, it would have been good. Even the KKW fragrance, if she had said, here's what I said, I read that now and I'm so embarrassed. And a couple of times she does get into stories about mistakes she made. Yeah. Those were the few times the stories were good. And we'll get into it later, but she talks about asking her friends straight up, how was it for you as a friend when I threw myself into my business and wasn't there for anybody I love? But I do just think in general, the surface level, like, write thank you notes thing. It felt like triggering because it felt like something my dad would say. I get that it was relevant in this situation and it helped Carly Kloss's career. I do think there is like a pretty vast difference between the way jobs were for our parents' generation, the way jobs were for our generation, and then the way Gen Z thinks jobs are. And I think that there is like this middle ground where my parents will always be like, well, have you said this in a meeting? Or like, you've been at this company for a year. They like owe you a raise. And then I'll like go ask for a raise and they'll laugh in my face. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not how it works. My parents are like, well, you should tell them X, Y, Z. And I'm like, oh yeah, good idea. That'll work this time. Like it never, you know what I mean? Write a thank you note. I was like, shut up. <laughs> Even though I do get why that's valuable advice. So I think you have to read this book as a high schooler. I think this book honestly was for herself when she was in Utah, when she didn't even know there was a path. And I actually ironically think about like how you talk about yourself when you said you went to school for like film production because you were like, I wanted to be in comedy in some capacity, but I didn't even know that that was possible for someone like me. This is for you before you took the leap. Like this is for the people who are like, well, nobody from Utah can be a celebrity hairstylist. And she's like, actually, you can. You just have to go for it and just like treat it like a job, like any other job. And I think that's who this book is for. So you can't be like 30-year-old mad about it because 30-year-old you wasn't supposed to be reading it. That's true. This next chapter is called Don't Let the Internet Rush You. And it's kind of just about how overnight sensations aren't real. And she has a couple times alluded to the fact that her success was fast But she's like, but I also worked behind the scenes for a long time. So it wasn't an overnight sensation. Don't let the narrative trick you. And also just about how you shouldn't want to be an overnight success because that means you're like probably have no staying power and you're not that good at what you do. I think that the part of this chapter, which is a little bit unrelated to that concept, is the part about people on their way to success and then bowing out of it. I think this was the most interesting part of the whole book almost is her discussing assistants who realized that the hustle and bustle of celebrity hairstyling was not for them. And they just wanted to go back to the Midwest and be like a top tier hairstylist in their town. I wish we could hear from those people. (laughs) She says she got an email from one of her assistants specifically being like, no offense, but I don't want your life. And I would love to be like, what specifically of her life did you not want? And I have to say, she does get to it. When she was building way and a top stylist with main addicts, she said she would give a example week and it's like flying from LA to New York, to Paris, to Dubai, to Hong Kong, to LA in a week, stopping and doing cuts and meet and greets and go-sees. She talks about having a full breakdown on a plane one day. And I do think it's very valid to say that's not the life I want. She says her and her husband, her husband is a very successful photographer. I do wonder how much of his success comes from being tied with her. His name is Mike Rosenthal. And she says that sometimes they'll go as long as months without seeing each other. And I'm just like, I do think you're well within your right to say that's not my dream life to have a husband that I never see. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting that It is a seemingly glamorous job. I think the main thing that I learned from living in California is that a lot of stuff that looks glamorous sucks. And so I would love to like hear more about the downsides. I feel like she really glosses up the things that are bad. She'll be like, we make it work for us, even though it's hard. And it's like, okay, cool. 
I would just love to hear from these people about like what you saw that made you be like, this was the wrong choice. I'm going home. She gives a sample of her day now. And it seems extremely not that bad. It's like up at 6.30, you work out, you meditate, you walk your dog. Between 9 and 1, you do client stuff. At 1, you have lunch. Between 2 and 7, you work on social stuff. And then at 7, you have dinner, play games, hanging out with your husband, go to bed. The other thing that I would love to hear from these people about is the admitting that it's not for you. Because from looking at this and from looking at what a celebrity hairstylist's life is probably actually like, I can see how you like armed with information would be like, that's actually not what I want. But going into that field and getting so far as to be working with Jen Atkin and having a lot of opportunities in front of you and a lot of celebrity heads in front of you. And like you're living this life that looks so glamorous on the internet, probably. I feel like admitting that that's not what you want is also the hardest thing to say like I dedicated this amount of my life to something and then I've chosen a different path now and I'm going to like fully pivot. That's like a really hard thing to do. Just like always be open to the fact that your definition of success might change because I'm sure those people at one point thought success was being Jen Atkins. And I do think that that's a good lesson that success when you're 20 will look different than when you're 30 will look different than when you're 40. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you failed. It means you learned and grew. And like, what is the point of being successful? Will Smith is such a good look at when we're like, you worked this hard and you can't even have crystals with your family. Then literally, what was the point? But I guess to him, the point was to be number one. Another piece of advice that I really liked from this chapter is that she says that you need to like be more conscious of the steps right in front of you. You need to just like, what is the next step for your career in front of you? Not what's your long-term goal. Like not what do you hope and dream to be someday, but like what is the ideal step that makes sense for like the next baby step up? I think a lot of people get lost on their end goal. And she says, if I'd been constantly trying to force my way into the next thing rather than allowing time for opportunities to develop, I would have missed so many opportunities like these. So just like small opportunities, interesting people to work with that ended up helping her really build up the career that she has today. And I do think people miss those kind of lateral or like mini opportunities because they're like, well, this isn't the end goal. I do think that that was one of the best pieces of advice that she didn't actually flesh out, but she told the story of is one of the first times she got in as a celebrity hairstylist was she was at the salon. She had a chair and she took a very last minute blowout and she didn't want to do it. But, you know, she doesn't say no to anybody. So she did it. She did a good job. The woman became a regular. It turned out that woman was one of the highest publicists in LA. And through her, she started doing work on all of the Mad Men women and Sofia Vergara when Modern Family was at its height. And that was really her first step into celebrity styling. And I think that's really where the workaholic pays off. It's saying yes to everybody and always doing a great job. You never know what opportunity will come from where. She says when you're too obsessed with being like, I want to work with one person or I want to want to get to this one goal. And if it doesn't serve that purpose, then I'm not going to do a good job. You have to keep your eyes open to every opportunity. Yeah, I think that that was actually useful. Or even the way she got her first foot in any salon door, literally, was she was interviewing for a job at a Starbucks that she found on Craigslist. She didn't get that job, but the woman next to her eavesdropping happened to be looking for a receptionist at a very high-end hair salon called Estilo or Estilo. I don't know. I don't know. Estilo. And that's how she got her first job at a fancy salon. Don't throw away any opportunity because you never know what it'll lead to. Yeah, So chapter four is called, It's Not About You. No, really, it's not about you. And I think this is one of the only specific industry tips that she gives that is unique and helpful. And it's a lot about how if you want to work with a celebrity, get ready to not be the center of attention. And I do think that that's something that people who think they want to be in that world, if you're a big personality 
and you're like, I'm a star. I should be around stars. No, you shouldn't. If you think you're a star, go be a star. Do not think you should be around stars. Being celebrity adjacent will just make you jealous, honestly. Because then you'll be like, well, I could do what they're doing. And then you just get resentful and weird. I think what she says pretty well in this book is like, at a certain level, everybody is talented. To have a chair on a high-end salon floor means you have gotten to a certain level of technical skill. To become the best of those people is all about drive and personality. And the people they rebook are the ones they liked working with, which means you weren't there being sloppy. You weren't there taking up all of their emotional attention. You were able to read the room. And if they want to vent, you were in ear. If they wanted to talk to their friends on the phone, you kept out of their way. And I think being able to read the room and being in service that way is then how you get to the next level and how she got to become her own persona, really. What I've learned over the years that all anyone wants is help being their best, which ends up being kind of the idea seed for the way her hair care brand she just wants to be there to help people make their vision come to life and the products that she was like running around getting to help make people look good she was like no one's doing these all at once so that's how that product line came to be she says I wanted to give people the tools to become the best versions of themselves so that they could focus on conquering the world rather than fixating on their appearance And then she gets apologetic again. She's like, I know appearance isn't that important, but it just like makes you feel good. And you're like, just just admit that people want beautiful, shiny hair. Then something interesting happens at the end of this chapter is she talks about when she had to hire a CEO for Way. In 2018, after launching in 2016, they were big enough that they needed somebody to come run the company. I ended up going on a lot of bad dates with stiff, buttoned-up men before we fired Colin Walsh, our current CEO. I find it very interesting that after all of this talk, because she is a devout feminist throughout this book, that they ended up hiring a man. I find that really interesting too. And she does not discuss it. She has other chapters about realizing that she needs to hire more women. She talks about how the Way is 88% female, but still... The head bitch in charge is a male. Well, it looks like they didn't even look at that many women. She says she went on a lot of bad dates with men. Yeah. A lot of this chapter is about asking for help where you don't know. And I do think it's interesting that she went and got a CEO. And I think that's part of why she's going to be so successful is because she's not going to insist on running her company into the ground, which I think a lot of celebrities make that mistake of thinking that the startup they started in their house can still be run by them. I think another section of this chapter that I find really fascinating is this part where she talks about not buying into your own hype and how much she hates awards. She talks about how she doesn't like winning hairstyling awards because other people don't win. People going home feeling like losers, lame. I think she has a lot of self-awareness and she's very self-conscious of being the Kardashian hairstylist because I do wonder if much in the same way that when the Kardashians win something and it's like, okay, well, you're not the best at this, but you are the most famous at it. In the hairstyling community, being their hairstylist has made her extremely famous. She even says in this book that she's not the best hairstylist. She's professional. She knows how to get the job done. And she's really good at selling herself. She also says these awards, they're selling airtime and they know that giving the words to certain people will help them sell more tickets and sell more ads. So keep that in mind when you're looking at who they pick to win. I wonder what the hair community feeling about her is. But also like celebrate yourself and your accomplishments. That was chapter one. I think there's some validity in when other people are giving you value by saying you're better than somebody else at something, that is like a false god. The idea that working towards a single award or a single trophy and letting that be what validates you is going to be empty because you're always going to be searching for the next thing. If you are like proud of your life and your skills, what you accomplish day to day, that's going to take you further. And I do think that that mindset of being like, I'm not doing it for the awards, I'm doing it for the life and my own sense of personal accomplishment is going to serve you long term. I agree with that. She didn't write that, but I agree with it. 
This next chapter, Finding My Way, got some real entrepreneur speak. I knew I understood something they didn't, and I was ready to disrupt. I love industry disruptors. In here, she talks about one of her life failures, and this is another example of what I wish she had gone into more. She brings up a story she promised to tell us at the introduction chapter about basically a dry bar competitor that would serve all types of hairstyles. She had a black business partner and a Jewish business partner, and she wanted something that would serve a larger community. And they just were all so busy that it never got off the ground. And it turns out if you want to start a company, you need to be willing to work on it. Present. And then she's like, it just sucked because I had invested my own money in it. But then she invests her own money in the way too. So I'm like, was there a lesson that you learned? And then her one regret with the way is that she didn't have more of her own money to invest in it so that she couldn't be a bigger percentage owner. I would have loved to know more about the failure because she kind of just says that it was an idea that essentially fizzled. And I'm like, there's no way a project gets to the level where you're investing a lot of your own money into it. Something failure must have happened. I bet they just raised their own capital in terms of like put in their own savings. And when they ran out of that money, they were like, we're going to have to invest or call it quits. And they just called it quits. But she does say she that she took what she learned from the market research of that business and put it towards way. And I do think that that is a positive way to look at everything. Like this is our third podcast. And I do think what we learned from the last two, I wouldn't call them failure. Well, maybe I would. It, would, it was market research. So then she goes through this chapter. It's enjoy the pinch me moments. Duh. Pay it forward, obviously. And then she talks about how to spend the money you've earned. And basically she says experiences are something you're going to love forever. She has all these designer shit she doesn't even like anymore. I mean, we know she was quite reckless with money at one point. She was $17,000 in debt when she first moved to LA because she got a bunch of credit cards and bought bottle service all the time. That was like an unrelatable thing to me. She was like, I would just like going out to like cool clubs. And for some reason, I thought it was cool to spend my money on a bottle all the time. And I was like, that's insane. So chapter six, setting intentions and changing your mind. This you and I are on board with. We love goal setting. We love setting concrete and intentional goals that we can cross off of a goddamn list. Yeah. She says setting goals is in the Mormon DNA and you and I have never been more Mormon. I will say the rest of it feels not super useful. She goes through her personal list of how to set goals. I will take a photo of her goal sheet and put it on our Instagram in case you want to use the Gen Akin attempt. She checks back in every six months to see how she's doing with those goals. She has a bunch of categories. She sets three goals per category. And she says, even if they're unrealistic, if I can check off one item in each category, I'll still feel good. I also want to give her credit. She says one of her 2018 New Year's goals was to learn how to use TikTok. And she was like way ahead of the curve on that. I don't think she actually went through with it because I just checked and she doesn't seem to be doing so great on TikTok, but great (laughs) intention. And then I also like this. This is similar to what we said before. She says, just as your goals shouldn't limit your happiness, I often caution my assistants that they shouldn't let their goals get too far ahead of the opportunities in front of them either. It's like similar to what we said before about not losing sight of the next step in front of you and getting too obsessed with the long term. And then she goes on to say that Her success is not exactly what you might think it is, that the more success she's had, the more work she has and the less freedom she has. She has a lot of people to answer to, a lot of people to answer for, and it is more stressful than you might think. And she's like, I don't want to romanticize being where I am. It's very difficult. And then she talks a little bit about the rest of her life. Obviously, we know that she's been very career focused and a huge workaholic. And this is one of the only glimpses into her relationship we get in this book, where she talks about how she 
had been so career oriented. She thought marriage was not in her future. She honestly just had no interest in it because her Mormon upbringing hyped up marriage so much. And she was like, that's so stupid. But then she talks about when Mike proposed. She says, Mike surprised me with a beautiful ring one day. I was floored and not in that, oh my gosh, you swept me off my feet kind of way. I was speechless. I definitely left him hanging for a few minutes. We had been dating for five years and had never discussed marriage even once. That's odd. I had a momentary freak out when I saw him down on one knee. This is not the plan, I thought. But what I actually said was, yes, if you promise we don't have to have a wedding. My life plan may have changed in an instant, but no one was going to get me into a fluffy white dress. Today, of course, I couldn't be more grateful that I failed to meet my goal of staying single. The relationship I'm in is nothing like the one I was avoiding. It's a true partnership that expands my life rather than limiting it. I'm so happy I recognized an incredible thing when I saw it and that I was willing to revise my vision, even if it did mean enduring a lot of I told you so's for my friends. I do think it is a bit annoying to be like the one failure of my life is being in a deeply happy, meaningful marriage. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, I thought that I would be alone forever, which is what I wanted. But instead, I'm loved, which sucks. <laughs> also, I did look up her wedding. She did a little article for it on Refinery29. We'll post it on the Instagram. But it was, I mean, it was small, but it was a wedding. It was like a 40-person brunch. Yeah, which is like the ideal wedding, in my opinion. I don't love that she wore black because it looked effortful, but... <laughs> Her and Mike both wore black and all the guests wore white. And I am like, all right, well, that's a bit wedding based in the contrarianness of it all. I completely agree. I think that like Emrata had one of the only like, this is not a wedding weddings I've ever seen. Like a yellow suit. Okay. If you're trying to be like, we're not having a real wedding. We're just going to like show up to the courthouse in like chic outfits. That's not a wedding. Still doing a brunch where there's a dress code and a color scheme. That's a wedding. I think a lot of the stuff that she reveals about her personal life, I'm like, I wish that you had either just once again made this strictly a business book or delved into it because it all feels like a little contradictory and strange and honestly just like not even something I want to hear about because it's so nothing. You came from a Mormon upbringing and we're so against marriage. You weren't ever going to get married. Like, let's talk about that. Let's or talk about you being in a five-year monogamous relationship with no thoughts about marriage ever. You and I talk about this all the time. To be surprised, to be genuinely shocked by an engagement is batshit crazy to me. I feel like if you haven't talked about the general period of time and the fact that you do want to get married, someone proposing is so weird and intrusive. I wish she had shoe-dogged us. This was not a good memoir. It really could have been. I know I keep asking for something salacious, but I do feel like that's because that's like the easy thing. If she wanted to give us this amount of nothing, she could have just like put a little drops of gossip into it. And that would have really like cured the book in an a simple way. But if she didn't want to be salacious, she could have really written a book. There was a way to do it. I think she actually had an incredibly interesting life. Yeah, me too. I just think that if she's not going to tell us about it, then it's boring. And then, of course, it ends with the power of positive thinking, where she says everything's perspective. So try to keep your perspective in mind because it will change your reality. And then she goes, I want to acknowledge that this is harder if you're a victim of abuse, racism, homophobia, or discrimination. If you experience trauma, please don't be embarrassed to seek help and don't feel like you have to go it alone. Acknowledging what's taken place is healing and you're not responsible for your reality and didn't deserve to experience it. This is such a weird aside that I highlighted because I feel like throughout this entire book, she does a lot of like qualifying of her experiences to be like, I worked really hard, but obviously other people who come from different backgrounds had to work harder. And it's like, you've said to not apologize so many times. And then every other paragraph is you apologizing. I feel like she lives this weird line where she's like next to the camera. Like she won't 
fully admit to being in front of it, but she does sidestep the haters constantly. Everything she's doing is like she's aware of her public persona and she wants to get in front of criticism, but she's also like not admitting to being a famous person. So then here's the next chapter, all the ladies. We get such a taste of what this book could have been, which is why it breaks your heart that it wasn't. She talks about being a feminist growing up and how being in Utah, she obviously didn't know about the concept of feminism, but she had this sense of like, my life and my opinions matter and I should get to have a choice about my future. And then she talks about how hairdressing is a man's world. And growing up, there was only two women, really, Sally Hirschberger and Odile Gilbert. But everybody else that was famous was a man. She had to work so hard to be taken seriously. But here's the thing. If you succeed in busting through the barriers that were created to keep you out, you have a responsibility to help the people who come after you to make it through too. This is where I fell short when my career started taking off. As soon as I had the opportunity to hire assistants, I hired men and more men. She's like, I fully thought that, you know, there's all these heavy things that have to be carried. A man would be better. She's like, I kind of subscribed to this idea that women would be more emotional assistants. And she's like, the crazy part was I was thinking, you know, this job is so difficult and it could bring out the worst emotions in people and you have to carry so much stuff. And she's like, and I knew that because I had just lived it. She's like, I had just been the hair assistant as a woman that I didn't think women could do the job. And of course, it's so ironic. And so she went in and she rectified it. And I thought that this was like such an interesting, honest chapter about making the mistakes that you're judging other people for and how she had to notice it and go in and correct it. But then it's funny, she leaves out the fact that her CEO is still a man. And I do think that this comes from that same level of thinking that deep down, it's really hard to get the patriarchy out of your brain. We're all indoctrinated. She talked about like female founders that she looks up to. Honestly, it's funny because I guess this list came out like right before all of these women got canceled. (laughs) talking about women who she kind of came up with who were nobody's all around the same time and have built pretty successful businesses. Hillary Kerr and Catherine Power started Who, What, Where. Sophia Rossi started Hello Giggles. Sophia Amoruso launched Nasty Gal. Emily Weiss launched Glossier. Huda and Mona Catan launched Huda Beauty. Kim launched KKW Beauty and Skims. Chrissy Teigen launched Cravings. Jessica Alba launched Honest. Whatever. There's like a whole list of them. And like a lot of these are women who've had a bit of a reckoning in the last year. And then she has a little section about body positivity. How she regrets all the time she wasted caring about her body. It ends with like a little feminist whatever where she just lists a bunch of people that are going to change the world in the future. Greta Thunberg, Yara Shahidi, Emma Gonzalez, Nadia Okamento, Malala... And you, dear reader, good luck out there. Which of our listeners is the next Greta Thunberg? Is Malala listening to this? You are Malala, DM us. Chapter eight, balance is bullshit, but you can still try. She talks about balancing workaholicness with family and friendships and life and the things outside of work. And I think that this is so hard. She says, the more successful I became, the more pressure I felt because people were relying on me and more money was at stake. I mean, the more successful you get, the more employees you have, the more important it is to keep your business afloat because it's now it's not only your livelihood at stake. You have an entire empire. And she says, though, instead of trying to strike a balance, she sat her family down when she was launching The Way and said, I'm going to be MIA for the next few years. Things are about to get really crazy. So you're going to need to forgive me in advance for being a bad daughter and sister. That's intense. And it's funny because she's like, they're okay with it because they love me no matter what. And time heals all wounds. And I'm like, okay, so were they okay with it or were they not okay with it? But she takes responsibility. She's like, there's a thin line between dedication and addiction. And I'm not sure I always fell on the right side of it. In an asterisk, she says, my therapist says this is hiding in your work. But she eventually has all these panic attacks. And she passed out and like lost consciousness and ended up in the hospital for exhaustion and dehydration. And she's like, I used to scoff at people who did that. 
But when she got to that point, she was like, okay, maybe I need to look at this honestly. And one of the things she did is she like stopped working on weekends and she called her team and said, I can't do everything. And she's like, it's amazing putting in boundaries. Nothing really changed. Like the fear I had that I was going to lose everything at once. It actually was okay. But then it is the thing that you brought up earlier. Like, would she have been able to build it to that level of success without acting like a lunatic or did she get everything into place by overworking herself to the core and then it was able to stay afloat once she backed off a little? And she says to this day, her husband, Mike, has to be like, okay, you said you're going to stop emailing people. Can you please pay attention to me? Yeah. I always find that these pe- people who tend towards workaholism, when they're like, yeah, I'm taking a step back. It's like, okay, so you're now working like nine to 10. Yeah. And she says that she had to put a hard stop on weekend work. And I do wonder what that looks like with so much travel in her schedule. Well, she says she tries, but that sometimes she'll go two or three weeks in a row without a weekend. Now that she's enjoyed a weekend, she sees it as something to look forward to. So she tries to get a weekend in every now and then. Now that she's heard of weekends. I mean, I think it was interesting the way she talks about the fear of taking time off because it wasn't even that she was afraid she would not get work done. She says she was afraid that getting a taste of relaxation would make her crave relaxation too much. And then she wouldn't be able to focus on work good enough because she'd be like wanting more time off. Yeah. She also talks about how when she was 38, she gave up drinking. And then she talks about wanting kids on balancing ambition and life choices. So she like never really wanted kids. And then I think in her 30s, she saw Way and her career as her baby. And then she talks about how Mike always wanted kids. And it wasn't until she married Mike that she was like, wow, he would be such a good dad. Maybe this is something I want for him. And so she froze her eggs. And she said she shared that experience on Instagram. And so many people come out of the word work and were like, oh my God, we froze our eggs too. One thing about technology is I feel like the pace of change of conversations is so quick that it's hard to remember a time when that wouldn't have been out in the open. But I do believe that like four or five years ago, people weren't as forthcoming about their decision to freeze their eggs. Yeah. They also like yassified egg freezing. It's like really chic now. I do think that it's good that she talked about it. It's good that she was really open about it. I think that it is this really interesting thing that I kind of wish she had jumped further into it's like a thing that I'm noticing in my life right now of like in order to be a successful career woman in order to have a successful career in general right you work your ass off through your 20s and you start to see some fruition in your 30s I mean this isn't obviously the timeline for everyone but then in my 30s I'm starting to see like some payoff but there's like still a lot of work involved in it like there's still a fuck ton to do and it feels like just the beginning of my career right now but it also is the time when like biologically you should settle down and have kids so it's like if I am definitely not going to settle down and have kids for another five years at least then like I might be really fucking myself over and like men don't have that which sucks (laughs) I do think this whole myth though that men's sperm stay perfect till the day they die is going to be debunked soon oh i think so too. i think that that's why we need more women scientists because i just don't believe that men's knees go bad their teeth go bad their hearts go bad everything's going bad except for their precious sperm but their balls are fresh as daisies <laughs> i'm oh so you're telling me the passage of time affects literally everything on this planet but not men's balls i think no <laughs> I'm sorry. If you've seen old balls, there's no way what's happening in there is fresh. (laughs) Anyway, okay. So the end of this chapter, which I find fascinating, is she talks to her best friend, Lindsay, and asks about the time in her life that she was an absolute workaholic. And she 
basically says, like, how did you feel about it? And Lindsay says, after this low realization that I was no longer number one and after getting over the frustration that at times I couldn't count on you to show up on time or even at all, I came to a place where I could either keep getting annoyed, stop being friends with you, or lower my expectations and just accept the challenging friendship for what it was. I chose the latter and eventually came to understand why you were so swamped and knew that it had nothing to do with me or our friendship. You were building an empire and that was all just growing pains. Today, I'm just so happy for you and proud of you and all of you accomplished. And I have mad respect for the way you've helped so many along the way and use your platform to break the mold. Swoon. Swoon! This bitch just slapped you in the fucking face. And then she goes, life is short. Do the best you can. Don't beat yourself up when you can't. That's the end of the chapter. I'm I'm sorry. Your friend just fucking egged you. I do think that this is such a good example of, wow, there were so many opportunities in here for you to dig deep into your own life and examine almost anything. And you refused. I just feel like if you said I could keep getting annoyed and being your friend or just lower my expectations and accept the challenging friendship. That is useful advice, but it's not a compliment. Like that is how sometimes friendships has to be as you age, but I don't think it's the goal. It is funny to be on the receiving end of that comment and be like swoon for your response to be like, don't I have the best friends? They've learned to expect nothing of me. Yeah. I couldn't count you to show up on time or even at all. That's bad. Chapter nine is called I Love You, Susie Orman. And it's about her relationship with money. And it's kind of, we've gotten through it. But basically, she grew up in a Mormon household where it was drilled into her how to save, pay for everything with cash. She says her dad never once had a credit card and didn't even expect her to get a credit card. And then, of course, as soon as she turned 18 and moved to LA, she got 17 credit cards and immediately went into horrible debt. She then worked her little booty off, I think, which I think explains why she was such a workaholic at the end of her 20s. She talks about keeping meticulous lists of how much money she made, skipping birthday parties and holidays to work one more gig. And I think with the information that she gives us in this chapter, which is that she's coming out of her early 20s in debt, it actually makes a lot of sense that she then went into this every penny matters mode. And that's why I wish she had written a true memoir. She also talks about business and relationships, hiring a money manager to help her manage and be smart with her business and investments. And then she talks about money and friendship and starting a business or some sort of business thing that fell through where she went into business with a close friend. It fell apart and they ended up not speaking for years. And she had to like fully put her tail between her legs and do like a big apology tour. And it was like a really dramatic falling out over money. And I'm like, give me one fucking detail of this situation. I am literally thirsting for information here. Especially if it was your mistake to make, I think that that's your lesson to share. If this is going to be a book about lessons you've learned, why not share this huge one that ruined your friendship? Yeah, she says a really close friend of hers. She says the hardest part had nothing to do with money. The worst part was that I lost a friend. Like, then tell me what you did. I have to know what happened. Even if you're going to generalize it a little bit to avoid liability or something, there's no information on what this falling out was over. And I need to know. And then the book ends with some more just bullshit platitudes. Moving on up, it's called Chapter 10. Forgive people. Use the mute button. That is smart. Be your authentic self. And then always just take risks and do whatever makes sense to you. This part has like kind of an interesting little aside on cancel culture. 
where it was just like, what are you talking about? Like, who, is this about Chrissy Teigen? She says it's important yeah. to know that there's a difference between muting or unfollowing someone and canceling them entirely. It becomes trendy to cancel people when they mess up, but it's unhelpful and unfair to deny people the opportunity to grow from their mistakes. In cancel culture, everyone's so caught up in exposing wrongdoers that they overlook the chance to teach someone how to do better. We all mess up, try to be a part of someone's efforts towards change rather than burying them. Is that about Chrissy Teigen? Probably. <laughs> this is one of the only books I want to get to the acknowledgements on just because I find one little thing interesting. Okay. So in the book, she says that Khloe Kardashian is the Kardashian she's closest to because she's so sweet and she's always sending thank you notes and she always reminds her to be like a more thoughtful person. The first person she thanks in her acknowledgements is Kim Kardashian. Thank you for teaching me to stay in my own lane, to not be fucking rude and to go after the life I deserve. I owe so many of my blessings to you. You truly changed my life and thank you for my avatar moment in the, Chris, in the Kim Kardashian Hollywood game. Then she thanks Kris Jenner. Then she goes to my clients and friends. And then she goes... Christy Teigen, Chloe. So any final thoughts, Ashley? I guess my final thought is that, I don't know, I'm just like sad when people write memoirs with nothing in them. It almost felt mean to have so much true knowledge and not give it to people. You know me, the thing I hate most is like non-actionable advice. Yes. There were so many lanes. I get that she didn't want to do the salacious tell-all of Hollywood. She could, but she doesn't want to. And I actually really respect that about her. I think that's why she's so successful. But she could have done a deeply interesting personal story or she could have done an extremely interesting story of... She says her business is worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Tell me the story of a hairdresser becoming the head of that company. Give me the details on your falling outs and your business failures. You talk about having hiring mistakes. Tell me about not just that they were male. What happened with these employees that you hired who you realized it was a mistake to hire them? There are failures. There are lessons here. Give me one. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I think like the things like don't wear booty shorts, don't wear a crop top to work, don't be on your phone. I, I know they feel patronizing, but I do think those were somewhat good advice. I think she could have done more good advice. But overall, I just wish she had picked a lane and doubled down and worked harder on it and given us more because I kind of like her and I respect her. Me too. I will say that I think if she had included those kind of surface level tips along with real tips, I wouldn't have felt so annoyed by it. I think the fact that like those were the action items in this book sucks. All right. Well, you guys, next week, we've got a doozy. So if you thought that this was a light episode, take it in, take a nap, take a bath and prep. Next week, we've got none other than Jamie Lynn Spears, the things she wished she had said. We can't wait to see you next week. Oh, as always, check out the Patreon. We love you so much. Yeah. Love you guys. And most of all, love to our beautiful five-star reviewers. First up this week, happy birthday to Mary Wallace. I hope you're wearing a little wormy birthday hat and your wonderful daughter made you a little dirt birthday cake. And thank you to our five-star reviewers, Jenny OT. I am so grateful that you got some overtime. Thank you, Melu111111. Bless you for these friggin' angel numbers. Thank you, Bold Waves. Your hair has never looked better. The waves were the right choice. Thank you, Suji Goose. I fucking hope that your pond is delightful. Thank you, MK Beck. I would love to see you on tour performing where it's at. Thank you, A. Adolph. I am not going to make the obvious joke here, but I adore you. Thank you, LJJOG2. Thank you for being an OG. Thanks, Howling Cat. 
you and me howling at the same moon, baby. Thanks, Maddie14 underscore 10. I'm absolutely mad for this review. Thank you, Kel, because everything just is because you said so. Thank you, MJ Owl. I hope you snatched up some great mice this week. Thank you to Russell Sprout, 28798. I cannot wait to see the fresh sprouts. Thank you to Haru 13 I love a lucky number 13. Thanks, Alyssa J8. You really ate up this review. Thank you, Queen Nell, for being my friggin' queen. Thank you to David DSM. I diagnose you with perfection. Thanks, Lion X Eyes. You have the most beautiful eyes I've ever friggin' seen. Thank you, 7500PFXL. This is my favorite resolution to watch shows in. Thanks, swimming pools. I cannot wait to take a dip this summer. Hey, it's me, 127383. I knew it was you, and I'm so glad you stopped by. Thanks to I Ship You Not. I friggin' ship you not. But yes. Thank you, Deer Track. I will be tracking you in the woods forever. Thanks, embarrassed underscore listener underscore. Please don't be embarrassed. Thank you, equal D exclamation greater than sign three. I think it's smiley face exclamation point heart. And I feel smiley face exclamation point heart about this review. Thank you, Katie Den 085. I hope that we can have a party in the den sometime. Thanks, Andy SF. I also hope we can have a party in SF sometime. Thank you, Julianne JPEG, my favorite photo. M. Thule, I love a tool skirt. And that's it for this week. Thank you guys so much. I friggin' love you.